Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The word of God says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is a church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is a mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Y'all can say something. Um, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's always a joy to be with you in the mornings. In the event that you do not hear Alan, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 16, and I'd love to dig right into our time. Well, not too many years after the death of Jesus, there was a man who was essentially born into slavery at a very early age. He was purchased and lived life as a slave in Rome for many, many years until he was finally uh, released from his, what we could call, service. His name was Epictetus, and um, his name means to be acquired. And as he grew older, eventually he became a philosopher, and much of what is left of his writing has inspired many. Now, many of you may be thinking, I don't know who that is. I'll probably never read philosophy. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give him a nickname, just like we would to anyone else in the valley, especially when we don't remember their names. And we just give him a nickname based on their characteristics. And so we're going to name him Epi. And so Epi once wrote, you become what you give your attention to. It's a pretty insightful statement. You become what you give your attention to. And there's some truth to what Epi is saying. Not only is he, or he is not only saying that we're most influenced by what we give our time towards, but by what we listen to. Everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, preaches to themselves. You preach a message to yourself every day, and at some point, that message takes root in your life, so much so that you are walking proof of what you preach to yourself on the daily. For many, that message could be something of positivity and assurance, where it's meant to lift your spirit up and not let the negativity of the day or of others become an influence or even affect you. For others, perhaps it's the message of the grind, and you see a lot of these messages right now, a lot of these videos on Instagram. It's Monday, get after it, you need to do X and Y, right? Don't worry about what anybody else is thinking, just get after it. The grind is what will lead to success. For others, still, one of the messages that may be preached is one of bitterness and self-righteousness, where other people's actions are not only wrong, but they are frustrating to you because they are not only hypocrites, but they are inconsistent 
And so you preach a message of judge and, and, and executioner. There's a variety of messages that we give our attention to. It doesn't just have to be those three. My question for you this morning is, what do you give your attention to the most? If you were to sit on that question for just a couple of seconds, what would you come up with? What do you give your attention to the most? What is it that you preach to yourself? Each one of these messages, everything that we preach to ourselves, directs us somewhere. And in, yet, in each one of these messages, something is still missing. In our text this morning, we're going to see that the church is shaped by a message. The message that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ to save sinners. Not because of anything done by us on our part or because we met him halfway, but simply, solely, and beautifully because of his own mercy. This message shapes who we are and what we do. Because here's your main idea. Because it is the word of God that directs the people of God to display the truth of God. Once more, it is the word of God that directs the people of God to display the truth of God. And so let me pray, and then we'll dig into our time. We're only looking at two verses today, but don't like, get too comfortable because in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at an entire chapter. Here we go. <laughs> God, let me begin by saying uh, thank you for allowing us to gather uh, allowing us to gather and, and sing songs to your praise, to sit under the preached word so that we would examine your word, so that we would be challenged and comforted by your word. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters as they come before you in prayer and as they come before you um, as we examine your word. Lord, I pray that those who know Jesus would come to know Jesus better this morning, and that those who do not know Jesus would come and know him. I pray that your word this morning would be sweeter than the taste of honey. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Well, the opening verses of this section serve as a good place to catch up on what has been happening in the event that you haven't been here. When Paul writes at the beginning of verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. We'll tackle that in just a minute. But the opening verse gives us or provides us a little bit of context. And if you're new, you might be asking, well, who is Paul and then who is he writing to? And by way of review, the Apostle Paul is a leader in the early church. At one point, he used to persecute Christians, then Jesus saved him, and now he plants and pastors churches. Ephesus is one of the cities where one of the churches that Paul started is located in. Ephesus is kind of like New York, uh, DFW, it's a really big city. And it's one of the churches where Paul served in uh, and since then has left after he raised up some pastors and leaders. 
but there's some trouble brewing at Ephesus. And so this letter is Paul writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor at this church, and he has sent Timothy to address and establish order in the church. And as you see in verse 14, where Paul says, uh, I'm writing these things to you, if I delay, in other words, Paul is really looking forward to getting to Ephesus. He really, really loves the church at Ephesus, and he hopes to see them soon. But in the event that he doesn't, he's writing to Timothy and giving him some marching orders. When Paul writes these things, that takes us back to everything we've been walking through over the last couple of weeks. For instance, Paul has urged and instructed Timothy to primarily address one thing, and that is to confront and to correct false teachers in this church and the message they're spreading within the church. And that is pretty much the culmination or the summation of chapter one. In chapter two, Paul addresses how that is to be done. And if we could summarize what we've been examining over the last four to five weeks into one word, it would be character. Your character reveals who you are, what you worship, and how you live. And we've examined character in a variety of contexts, such as prayer, that the Christian life begins with prayer. When we come before the Lord in prayer, our sin, our pride, our cynicism is exposed because we are vulnerable and unmasked, which is why a lot of Christians don't like to pray. We've looked at character in the context of the roles of men and women in the church through God's design for the way the church ought to function. We've examined character when it comes to church leadership within pastors, called and qualified men whose character serves the church by leading the church. We've examined character in the context of deacons, called and qualified men and women of character who lead the church by serving the church. And as we come to the final verses of chapter three, it's no surprise that we're gonna continue with this theme of character by looking at the character of the church, and that is us. So this is something that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, right? We looked at leadership, that is pastors, and we looked at deacons. Now we're gonna see the role of the church, the character of the church. And here's what you need to know. Character always begins with identity. Character always begins with identity. Character answers the question, who are we? And Paul answers that in verse 14. Once more, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So who are we? We are the household of God. Now that has two implications, and that's the one thing that you're, or that's one of the things you're going to see in this text. Paul's going to talk about a few things, and each one of these has several implications. The first one is that we are the household of God. The first implication of that is that the church belongs to God. The church has a head, and his name is Jesus. Storehouse McAllen belongs to Jesus. It may be our church by stewardship, but it is Jesus' church by ownership. 
second, as the household of God, this is that second implication, it is that God has designed his household to have order. Everything that we just reviewed comes down to order. Order in the household of God allows for the flourishing of the church. It's not merely that we survive, it's that we thrive. And the order God has designed in the household of God, in his church, is meant to make us flourish and thrive and grow, not just survive. And this is what the church in Ephesus was facing. This is why Paul is writing to Timothy. There are things that are brewing, the false teachers, the false teaching. There are things that are brewing within the church, and so they're not flourishing because the order is now disordered. It's disorganized. The message is a false message. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to remind him to establish order by way of God's design so that not only they would repent, but so that they would flourish. And we don't just see it in these two letters, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. We see it once more in Revelation 2, where Jesus speaks to several churches through John, and he addresses Ephesus once more. You should take a look at that. That's Revelation 2. Nevertheless, when Paul writes how one ought to behave He is referring to the order in the church that was designed by God for the flourishing of his church. Our behavior, and we'll look at that in a minute, but our behavior is the result of our belief. It is the result of what we're preaching to ourselves. It is the result of what we believe. You cannot divorce belief from behavior. No matter how much you try and no matter how clever you think you may be, you do not divorce, you cannot divorce belief from behavior. To attempt to do so would be, as James writes, that you are unstable and double-minded in all of your ways. So who are we? We are the household of God. Why? Because the church is the residence of God. We're still in verse 14. He says uh, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So we are the household of God, but the church is also the residence of God. The church is where God dwells through the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who dwelled in, anointed, and empowered Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that dwells within us. The church is not a building. This building is the McAllen Creative Incubator, and we gather here to praise God and all that he has done in and through and for us through Jesus. But the church is a people, and because the church is a people, the Holy Spirit dwells within that people. The author of Acts says it this way, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The church is the residence of God, where God dwells through the Holy Spirit. 
This church, our church, is the church that Jesus said he would build and that not even the gates of hell could prevail against it. That means that as the church, we are more than the Sunday gathering. But we're not less than that. And so what's the issue? Well, the issue, both at Ephesus and in our day, is that many in the church do not like the order God has designed. It is not that we might disagree on a few things. It is that some rebel and resist the order God has designed. As a result, those who are on the outside of the church, those who do not know Jesus, turn away angered and disheartened because what they see when they look into the church is hypocrisy and a lack of genuine love that exists from within the church. Those who do not like or do not want to submit to God's design are at risk or currently in some sort of false teaching. That's what we see in Ephesus. There is rebellion. There is resistance. There is false teaching. Their character is being revealed that they do not worship the God of the Bible, that they live in a way that is not honorable. In fact, it is hypocritical. The church in Ephesus, just like many churches in our day, do not desire to pray. Instead, they rather argue and quarrel among one another, or they rather dress in a way that brings all the attention onto them, taking everything away from our attention on God. When a church uh, lives and, and walks in a way that is resistant to God's design, there's no confession. There's no contribution because rather than confession and contribution being a part of the life of the church, complaint and consumerism have taken over. Complaint always comes in the form of uh, making comments about the way things are, things that might be secondary issues, tertiary issues, but there are always some sort of complaining because some people just don't like the way things are rather than getting their hands dirty and jumping in to serve in the life, serve in the life of the church. There is complaint rather than contribution. How do we serve one another? How do we live with one another? How do we love one another? There's consumerism. In other words, the Sunday gathering, community groups, and the life of the church is really just a buffet to satisfy me. That's the difference. Rather than confession and contribution, there's complaint and consumerism. As a result, what happens in many churches is that division is now created. You say, well, we don't really use those words, but we do in the valley. We just call them cliques. Dissension happens. Well, we don't hang out with them because of X, Y, and Z. Not only do we agree, I'm going to tell someone else in my prayer group to make sure that we're praying for you. I'm going to pray an unspoken for you. And as a result, those who are outside of the church looking in are disheartened. They're disheartened because 
they themselves are looking to belong. They themselves are looking to find hope, looking to learn about who God is, looking to find community. Instead, they find hypocrisy. Do you know the number one reason, or maybe I shouldn't say it that way, maybe it's the most common reason people join gangs. I read a few articles dating back from uh, the mid-1960s all the way to uh, one that was recently released earlier this month, and I could say it's the number one rule, but the most common reason people join gangs, at least in the United States, is so that they would belong. Oddly, so that they would be encouraged. So that they would be heard. So that specific needs would be met and then shared among community or camaraderie. That's the most common reason people join gangs. That's just an example. We can do a bunch of different things. But it's a shame that that's not why people come or join the church. The church should be the people, both the people and the gathering where those who are lost, those without hope, those whose hearts have been won by false idols, those that they are welcomed, where they should belong, where they should be served, where they are won over both by the proclamation and experience of the gospel. And if that makes you uncomfortable because it means serving someone different, need I remind you, that is part of your story. That people were praying for you before you even knew Jesus. Remember, the Christian life begins with prayer. That people folded you into the rhythm so that you may experience the goodness of God through community. That is part of your story. As the residents of God, as the household of God, we are first a church family. For those who have been saved through faith in Jesus, this means that we have been reconciled to the Father. That word reconciled is relational language, that we have been reconciled to the Father as adopted sons and daughters. One of my favorite Bible teachers, his name is John Calvin, this is what he writes, There are good reasons why God should call the church his house. For not only has he received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of us. What does it also mean to be a household of God? It means that we are a community of believers in community, both with one another and within the context of our city. We are committed to one another in ways of service. That would just be church membership, where we commit to one another in membership. This is where we speak the truth in love. That's just called discipleship, where we pursue righteousness alongside one another. This is how we actually grow in maturity. This is where we confess sin to one another, and that is repentance. Once more in Acts, we see that 
the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so that's God's word, the fellowship, that's time with one another, the breaking of bread, meals together, because that was a sign of intimacy and trust and hospitality and vulnerability and prayers. That means that we communed not only together, but with God. So being the household of God means that we are a church family, a community of believers in and among community. It also means that everyone, you don't have to take notes for this, everyone has a chore in this family. Everyone has a chore in this family. My mom would always say it this way to my brothers and I. My mom would say, there is no maid in this house. Yes, ma'am. Everyone has a chore in this family, which means, check it. You don't need your notes for this one either. Check it. You will be inconvenienced. And that is where your character will be revealed. You're going to ask to help something at something that you stink at. And that is where your character will be revealed. You're going to get that random call after you've had that 10-hour long day and you just made some popcorn and you just want to binge on something and you're going to get that call and it's someone who's going to say, hey, I need you to pray for me. This is what's going on. And the last thing you want to do is answer that phone call because you've had that 10-hour day. And you would say, well, pastor, you don't get my job. It's really demanding. So is the majority of everyone else's jobs. Everyone has a chore in this family, which means you will be inconvenienced. Not to mention, you're probably on the other end of that too. You're the one who's inconveniencing someone else, right? Because you're reaching out. You're doing exactly what you ought to be doing because, well, man, we're a church family. We're a community of believers. Like, I need prayer. Do it. Do it. I want to encourage you to do it. The reason we oftentimes don't like to be inconvenienced is because we want the church designed our way. But when the character of the church is committed to the truth of God, the church flourishes. That's what Paul's getting at. When the character of the church is committed to the truth of God, the church flourishes. The character of the church always begins with identity. The church is the household and residence of God. Next, we come to the mission of the church. This is in the second half of verse 15. If the first half of this verse, that is 14, if the first half of verse 14 asks uh, the question, who are we? And it answers that we are the household and the residents of God. Then the second half of verse 15 uh, asks the question, well, then what do we do? And so Paul uses uh, architectural imagery to capture our attention at the mission of the church. So let's consider verse 15. <sighs> Uh, verse 15, if I delay, may know that how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I want to start with the truth first, and then we'll look at a pillar and a buttress. We need to hold our ground here. 
When it comes to the truth, this is the person and work of God according to his word. This is where we need to begin because this is what we need to get right. See, the ultimate bedrock foundation for the church is the truth of God according to his word. Not the other way around. The church is not the foundation of the truth. Yet, in so many other areas, in so many other, um, dare I say, sects, there are, this is going to misalign. For instance, in the Roman Catholic faith, they would say that the church is the foundation for determining the truth. That is why they would equate the authority of Scripture with history and tradition. They would say the church is actually responsible for determining the truth. And they would take a, a verse like this. Or perhaps, as we looked at a couple of other uh, uh, areas in in Protestant churches a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the whole uh, CEO anointed one type of system. And that's where there's one pastor who serves as the anointed one. And, and really no one questions him or no one approaches him. And so it's like, well, he's the one who's going to kind of establish the truth. So, okay, well, I'm not going to say anything. But according to this text, what God through Paul says is that the church does not determine the truth. The church displays the truth of God. There's the difference. The church does not determine the truth of God. The church displays the truth of God. And the truth of God is the person and work of God according to his word. And so now we can bring the imagery back in. And so Paul says that the church is a pillar of truth. The principal role of a pillar is to hold up a roof. In this imagery, Paul is saying that the church holds or lifts the truth up for the whole world to see. That is the role of a pillar. Our mission is to display the truth of God. And how do we display the truth of God? Through proclamation and practice. Practice is the way in which we live. You preach a sermon. Each one of us preaches a sermon. As the pillar of the truth, we are to display the truth of God. Paul adds that we are a buttress of the truth. A buttress is a supporting structure in a building. It's meant to stabilize uh, or to support the foundation. In the same way, the church helps to hold the truth of God steady And the people of God are people of truth, which means that we need to know, we need to hold, and we need to live the truth. The church needs to stand firm and ready. And we do so by knowing the truth, the truth of God according to his word. The truth, or excuse me, the church needs to stand firm and ready when she encounters cultural trends. Trends that are going to come and go, but nevertheless, the church is going to face these cultural trends and oppositions. And as the church that is rooted in the truth of God, we are to be a faithful witness of the truth of God in the midst of these cultural oppositions. The church needs to stand firm in the word of God or the truth of God and ready against false teaching and tolerance of sin within the church. By pushing darkness and deceit back with the truth of God and winning one another over with the love of God. 
Many churches, just like Ephesus and in our day, many churches don't want to be a pillar or a buttress of truth. Rather, they stray and wander from the truth of God. The church in Ephesus did. In Revelation 2, Jesus tells them, you've forgotten your first love. A lot of work is happening, but you have forgotten your first love. I also want to consider another church that Jesus addresses in Revelation 2. This is the church in Thyatira. I'm not gonna give a lot of context just for the sake of time, but I would encourage you to read Revelation 2, chapter two and three. And so this is what Jesus says to the church in Thyatira. I don't think this is up on the screen, so you get to just listen. Here's what he says. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Sounds good so far. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I get it. Some of you are like, okay, whoa, what is that? Chill, right? Here's what I want you to get at with Jesus' words to the church in Thyatira. Many people in the church do not want to stand firm and ready. And they cannot hold the truth because they do not fully know the truth. And so what Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira, he's saying, I see you working hard. You have a love for one another, which means you might hang out with one another. Maybe you bought each other dinner that one time. You opened up your home. I know about your faith. You know, I saw the forgiven tattoo on your wrist and posting something on Instagram that one time. I know about your service. You know, you served one another, bringing one another dinner, met with one another in a time of need. He says, I know that you're patient and you've endured a lot. That's what he's telling them. He's like, hey, I've recognized what you're doing. But then he says something, I have this against you. And the context of this whole thing is this. What Jesus has against them is that they tolerate sin and they've embraced false teaching. And as a result of the church tolerating sin, making it okay, pretending like it doesn't exist, and embracing false teaching, Jesus goes on to say, not on the screen, you could just listen to this. Jesus goes on, to ch- goes on to say, same chapter, the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So the churches that have tolerated sin, the churches that have embraced false teaching, Jesus ultimately says, I'll give you to your sin. Churches who think they are Christian, who think they know Jesus, Jesus will say, I actually never knew you. That's what happens when churches do not know the truth, 
and do not hold fast to the truth. I want our church to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, the truth according to God's word. I want us to display the truth of God because the beauty of Jesus is that he saves sinners, reconciling us to God, not only calling us sons and daughters, but from sinner to saint. I want our church to not be perfect. I want our church to be repentant. I want our church fully committed to one another in the transition we're about to experience in the next couple of weeks, in the good times, in the bad times, in the really nasty times. I want us committed to the truth of God. I want our church to love Jesus more than anything else in this world. I want our church to delight in the word of God so that we would be like a tree that's planted near a stream of water and in its season it bears much fruit. I want our church to address and confess sin head on with an aim of love pointing one another to the person and work of Jesus. I want us to confront and to correct false teaching so that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus so that our hearts would be aligned with God's will and not our own. I want our church to flourish because the truth of God is not only displayed by us, but because we have given our entire attention to the truth of God. There is no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. There is no such thing as a churchless Christian. That is a foreign concept to the New Testament. And some would say, see, here's the thing. I love Jesus. I just don't love the church, or I just don't want anything to do with the church. To say that is to deny Jesus. Someone comes up to me and is like, man, uh, Marco, I really love hanging out with you. I just don't really like hanging out with your church. Guess what? We don't get to hang. The most common imagery, or one of the most common imagery that we see in Scripture is that Jesus as the groom, the church as the bride, and we see the groom faithfully, consistently, persistently, uh, regularly, daily pursuing the bride in spite of her sin. I love Jesus, but not the church is to deny Jesus. The mission of the church is to be directed by the truth of God so that we can display the truth and beauty of Jesus. Well, we've looked at the character of the church, we've considered the mission of the church, and now we look to the message 
of the church. This is the message that we preach to ourselves. This is the message that we proclaim unashamedly. This is the message that we share with those who we love in all of our circles. And this begins in verse 16. Actually, it is all of verse 16. Paul opens by saying, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. I love how he starts off with the little phrase, great indeed. Uh, If you can go back to, to Acts, And in Acts is where you read the start of the church in Ephesus. And one of the biggest uh, false gods or idols that they worship was the goddess of uh, Artemis. And Paul recognizes this. And they all talk about how great this goddess is. And so when Paul, fast fast forward to 1 Timothy, when Paul writes, great indeed, he's actually taking a stab at Artemis. He's saying that big statue that's out there in the center of the city does absolutely nothing. That false idol, that idol that has won your heart does absolutely nothing. I will tell you who is great. That's why Paul addresses it that way. So he's great indeed, we confess. So what he's about to talk about that is the mystery of godliness, he's saying, hey, this is the church's confession. This is the church's conviction. This is her proclamation. And he says it is the mystery of godliness. When you see that word, in the, particularly by Paul, uh, the word mystery, it means that it was something that was hidden or unknown, but now it has been revealed. And the mystery of godliness is the person and work of Jesus reconciling sinners to himself. And if you'd be like, oh, how does he do that? Paul unpacks all of that. And we're going to go line by line. He goes on to say that he was manifested in the flesh. This is the incarnation of Jesus. And what you're going to notice in these six lines is that he tackles a different part of Jesus's life. And so first he unpacks or he tackles the incarnation of Jesus. That is that God the Son became the God-man. Through the virgin birth, God enters into human history. He takes on flesh and blood. That's what he means by manifested. And he takes on two natures, divine and human. That is, he is fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. The next thing that Paul addresses is that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now here he's talking about the life, the ministry, and resurrection of Jesus. That word vindicated means that he proves. And so what did the Holy Spirit prove? What did the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit was the one who filled the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit was the one who proved Jesus to be who Jesus was at his baptism. The Holy Spirit is the one who preserved Jesus from sin during his ministry. The Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus as the Son of God through the resurrection of Jesus. Upon Jesus' resurrection, The Holy Spirit is the one who proved and confirmed that everything Jesus ever did or said was true. My prayer is that we would cry out and pray that the Spirit would minister to us in the same way. Number three, he says, seen by angels. There's two ways of tackling this. Okay, here's the first one. 
The first one is when you take the word angels, you just take it for what it is. Angels, right? Uh, spiritual beings, supernatural creatures who, who worship God in heaven and serve him on earth. You could look at it plain as day and you wouldn't be wrong. It's not like it's contrary to scripture. You wouldn't be wrong. Angels sang at the birth of Jesus. Angels served him in the wilderness. Angels were the ones that said uh, Jesus was alive to the disciples. Angels were the ones who attested to, to Jesus's accession. Do you remember that? In Acts, they're like, what are you doing? Are you going to get to work? He's already gone. Like, right? Like angels are the ones who were there. So if you see it at face value, you wouldn't be wrong. In addition to that, another way of looking at it is when you take the word angel, it also means messengers. So we have the life, the ministry, and the death of Jesus, and now we look at the messengers, that is, the apostles. They were the eyewitnesses to the life, work, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appears to the disciples, now apostles, and that they are a vital part of the plan of salvation. In order for the apostles to know that Jesus was the Christ, they had to see his resurrection body. You see, without their testimony of the resurrection, we wouldn't be here. And without the resurrection, our faith would be in vain. The church, you and I, us here, the church is the fruit of Jesus' resurrection. Paul continues, proclaimed among the nations. This is the proclamation of Jesus. And so the apostles began to fulfill the great commission at Pentecost in Acts 2. You see Peter, the one who had just denied Jesus, was now redeemed by Jesus. And he stands up and he preaches this massive sermon. And he's preaching about the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. He's quoting from Psalm 16. He's pulling from Joel 2. And people interrupt him and say, brothers, what must we do? And he says, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, and over 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus that day. So you see him proclaiming Jesus. You see that happening with Paul as he writes to Timothy. How are you going to confront and correct the false teachers? You're going to proclaim Jesus to them. What the church is doing today is part of God's plan in redemption as we, that's you and I, proclaim the excellencies of God to anyone and everyone who would listen. Therefore, let us testify to His grace in our lives. Let us proclaim the gospel to everyone that we love. Number five, he goes on, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. As a result of this proclamation, God has saved millions upon millions of people throughout the history of redemption and present day. In other words, Jesus has not only saved, but he continues to save to this day. You are proof of this confession if your faith is in Jesus. You are proof of this confession. Your faith is proof that Jesus saves sinners. Therefore, let us never let go of this belief, for it is the source of our identity. And finally, he says, taken up in glory. This is the glory of God in Jesus. And it is worded a little uh, interesting because it sounds like all of this happened and then he was ascended. Right? So why would it be worded this way? Well, one solution is that it refers to the second coming of Christ in that Jesus will return the same way he left, in glory 
and gathering all people to himself. This is the certainty that, we'll pre- that we preach, that Jesus will return in power and glory to claim his bride, the church. And until this day, we worship Jesus as we wait with eager expectation. At the heart of the church is a message that Jesus saves sinners. This is great. This is what we confess. And this is what we proclaim. So as we close, Epi was right in that we become what we give our attention to. But much like Epi's philosophy, which has insight, messages of positivity, the grind, as we called it, or bitterness, amputate the soul. Why? Because each one of those messages lacks hope. In positivity, you are meant to ignore the bad and simply embrace the good. But the problem is that hardship, suffering, loss, grief, and terrible days exist. And while I'm sure there are some helpful practices, what happens when it all goes wrong? Even if positivity leads you to embrace, it is what it is, it is still without hope. In the grind, you work as hard as you can, as much as you can to chase whatever it is that you're looking for. And one of the things that it can lead you to or what it can lead you to is to despair. I can't do this. It's too hard. I don't know why I'm here. This is dumb. I quit or arrogance. Look at what I've done. Look at how I am. Look at all I've achieved. Am I telling you not to achieve success? No, I'm not telling you that. Of course you should. You can achieve anything you set your mind to. The prophet Arnold Schwarzenegger told us that. And uh, and, and look at him, right? But here will be your identity, despair or arrogance. In bitterness, you are upset because you are not God. Let's just park there for a second. In bitterness, you are upset because you are not God. And while you might have good reasons for certain things, and you're seeking justification for other people's actions, not only are you trying to be the judge, the question here is, what is it that you're winning them to in your bitterness? To embrace the same bitterness as you? To beat them down so that they would float in a sea of despair? What do you win them to? What's the hope in bitterness? Where are you taking them other than misery? If bitterness is the message that you preach and one that you live, check it, this is what's up. You've made peace with the log in your eye. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, hey, before you address the speck that's in your brother's eye, why don't you take the log that's out of your own so that you can see clearly. And I love that part. It's not just like, just take it out. It's like, take it out so that you can see clearly, sober-mindedly, with sound judgment. Maybe what you have to say is true, 
But how you approach your brother now changes all the more. But for the one who is, the one who has embraced and is entrenched in bitterness, they have made peace with the log in their eye. And ironically, have become the hypocrite themselves. Gotcha. In Christ, however, we have a God who has lived in our place. This means that Jesus understands hardship and suffering. Not only did he go through it, but he sympathizes with us. Jesus understands the grind. He was a carpenter, yet his delight was on things that were in heaven and not on earth. Jesus understands and sees the fallen nature of man, and not only did he not succumb to sin, he died in our place and for our sin. He took our debt and paid it with his credit. He took our responsibility and paid it with his righteousness. He took on our hopeless case and made it his own so that we might have hope. He took on our ruin and reconciled us to the Father. And the Holy Spirit took our dead hearts to sin and made us alive in Jesus so that we would tell others and live a life not of I'm better than, but repentance. This is the message of hope. The message that we proclaim. The message that we preach. This is the truth that we display and the truth that we live So Christian, let me ask you a couple of questions. What are you preaching to yourself? What is it that you are preaching to yourself? If character begins with identity, what or who defines you? If character is revealed with the way we live, what does that say about what you are preaching to yourself? You and I are not as clever as we think. And character will reveal who we are, who or what we worship, and how we live. What truth are you preaching the truth of God to yourself? So let me invite you to come before the Lord, to confess, I don't know, pride, arrogance, despair, self-pity, bitterness, to confess that before the Lord, to look to the truth of God, Let me invite you to repent. And if you don't know Jesus, the same question applies to you. What do you preach to yourself? What has your heart? And if you're preaching other messages, let me ask one more question. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Let me invite you to repent of your sin. That the Lord Jesus will take your guilt because of his righteousness, not yours. And he is ready and willing to pardon all who turn to him in faith and repentance. Church, it is the truth of God that directs the people of God to display the truth of God. Let's pray. Father, as we we close Allow us to close by confessing our sin to you. We confess that we stray from you and turn aside from you. 
Often we are misled by our pride in the realms of arrogance, self-pity, even hypocrisy. However, you have brought about redemption in us through your Son, Jesus Christ. He has called us to himself as the church, reconciled to you and filled with the Holy Spirit. God, give us the strength to cry out to you, to submit to your word, and to live in a way that honors and proclaims your mercy and grace. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.